Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, PJ O'Rourke wonders if it's a good time to be a libertarian. Nobel laureate economist Angus Deaton discusses inequality. Mark Zupan examines how government insiders impact the public interest. And Stephen Brooks and Eugene Goles debate America's place in the world. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Premiering this month on public broadcasting stations throughout the country is our departed colleague Andrew Coulson's School, Inc., a project he sought a completion until his death. Andrew passed away a year ago, February. It was a labor of love, and hopefully it will mark another signpost in the journey towards greater educational freedom. And it is a movie that is quintessentially Andrew, full of stirring observations and good humor, and never forgetting who is fundamentally at the heart of education reform, the children. Joining me to discuss Andrew's legacy and the movie are two people who worked very closely with Andrew. Neil McCluskey is the director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom, and Jason Bedrick is the director of policy at EdChoice, an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute now, but formerly a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. So I haven't seen the movie yet. Um, unfortunately, we just sort of got the DVDs into the office, but you guys were involved in the making of it, and you've seen it before, at least different cuts. So, Neil, what, what is the movie about? Give me an overview of School, Inc., and uh, what, what you will see if you watch it. Sure. Uh, the first thing is, it's, I mean, it's, it's a, this is a three-part documentary. So, this is really getting in-depth on education reform. But in a way, it's about a lot more than education reform. What it's asking is, why do we see such incredible innovation, uh, such growth, uh, so many things in our lives getting better on kind of a constant basis, but education's always been sort of the same. It's stagnant. We don't see improvements. We don't see it serving children or families well. And what he's really exploring is, why does freedom and freedom to include profit-making lead to such terrific outcomes in so many aspects of our lives. You know, if you think about, uh, it wasn't that long ago we were using phones that were really just connected to our wall, and now we all have these miniature computers that we carry around in our pockets, in fact, much more powerful than computers we were using when we had phones that were stuck into our wall. And so he's going in depth, talking about history, going to different parts of the world, and he's saying, why does innovation happen? Why isn't it happening more in education? And oh, look at these places around the world. We talk about Sweden, we go to South Korea. Look at how innovation is happening in these places, in education. And look at how freedom, and, and again, even the profit motive, maybe especially the profit motive, are major drivers of this. And so that kind of puts it in the tradition of Milton Friedman's Free to Choose. And Free to Choose Media is actually a producer of, of this documentary, because Milton Friedman went around the world and said, hey, look at freedom, uh, look at how this works, isn't this amazing? And as you mentioned, some of the places where Andrew goes, uh, in in making this, um, first of all, do you, do you have any idea how it was conceived of? Was it Andrew's idea? Was it 
free to choose? Was it PBS or came to him? Uh, was it pitched in such a way as we want to do free to choose for education choice? Yeah, this was all Andrew's brainchild, but it's interesting because he was sort of pontificating about how we might like to do something like this seven or eight years ago. And some of the things he pointed to were free to choose. He talked about how much he enjoyed you know, Carl Sagan's Cosmos. And he said, wouldn't it be great if we could do something like this to really illustrate what could make education great. And so this was all really Andrew's idea. Most of the production, most of the whole process of putting together this documentary was, you know, this is 90% Andrew. I mean, he worked with people who were professional cameramen. Uh, Free to Choose Media provided a lot of production value, you know, at the end uh, to get this into its final form. But the vast majority of this was all from Andrew's head and all sort of the sweat of Andrew's brow. Right. I mean, he chose the locations. He wrote the script. Uh, everything basically was under his control as the director and the producer. Uh, it was, it's really a fantastic uh, project. And he does. He, he travels the world and he, he goes to places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Okay, So you, you, you may expect he's going to go to Sweden because they've got some form of school choice there. You wouldn't expect necessarily that he's going to go into South Korea and look at the Hagwon system, right? They're, they're tutors and, and show how there are actually teachers there who are making uh, more than a million dollars a year and that are considered rock stars. Uh, you know, when, when, when students uh, that, that I mean, some of these teachers in, in South Korea have uh, thousands of students, tens of thousands even, because they're teaching online and they're considered rock stars. So somebody will uh, see him on a subway and come over and ask for an autograph, right? Not something I think that most uh, public school teachers in the United States have ever experienced, I would imagine. But also he goes to the slums of Hyderabad and uh, you know, in, in some of the worst places in the world where you would imagine that um, you know, the school systems are just entirely broken. He takes you into the slums with James Tooley and shows you actually uh, even though there are free public schools for these kids, that parents that are living on less than a dollar a day are still putting, you know, a few pennies a week uh, into their child's education at a private school because uh, there's where the teachers actually show up because they're paying and they expect the teachers are actually going to show up and in the public schools they don't. Uh, so it's it's really an incredible journey. I think most people, uh, even in the education policy world, uh, are going to learn a lot from watching it. Do either of you know about any of the difficulties related to getting it on to PBS? Because as someone who's written about public broadcasting, uh, I actually know about some of the difficulties of Free to Choose. When Milton Friedman put that on, they if you remember Free to Choose, the latter half of all the episodes include a conversation with critics. That was a requirement that PBS required them. Was it, were there any difficulties with getting it on? Was PBS resistant to it? Well, there's, I think, a lot of Difficulty anytime you want to take a documentary and get it on the air, especially if you're not sort of known as a documentarian. Um, and so Andrew was trying to take kind of an original idea as a person who didn't have a background in filmmaking and say, this is going to be a really good, really kind of engaging and entertaining documentary, and it's going to engage people who aren't, you know, they're not free market zealots, they're not libertarians, they're just regular people who are going to learn a whole lot that has nothing really even to do with ideology. Just learn how things historically 
have worked in the world. And I think that that was the major selling point, was to say, look, even though I'm not a known quantity as a filmmaker, you can see what I've already done, and that was certainly helpful to already have material there. But to be able to assure PBS, especially from what they saw, that this isn't going to be sort of an overt uh, uh, ideological club that's going to be hitting people over the head. This is actually going to be engaging, entertaining, kind of educational storytelling about education and just about how the world and economies and how innovation work. But it was certainly a very slow process, uh, you know, as you would imagine these sorts of things would be. Um, Andrew finished before he passed away. Uh, he, he, you know, spent his last years really putting his heart and soul into making it happen, and it was finished before he passed. But um, it just they weren't able to get it up on the air in time, unfortunately. Uh, it was originally a four-part series. They had to trim it down to three parts. Uh, so there was you know, a lot of work, obviously, that uh, went into doing that. Uh, but I think, it, you know, from what I understand, it preserved you know, the, the integrity of the project. Uh, although I, I do hope someday they will release the director's cut <laughs> with the four-part series. We've seen some movies in the past that discuss educational reform. I, I mean, I won't call it freedom necessarily that maybe moved the needle a little bit. For example, Waiting for Superman uh, came out in 2010 and was pretty critical of public education and pretty pro-charter schools. Is this the kind of movie that might move the needle a little bit? Well, I certainly hope it moves the needle a little bit. I think people who watch it are going to have their views changed about how education can and should work. Uh, it's certainly we can, you know want to get the word out to as many people as we can. Watch this. It is coming most likely to a PBS station near you. Um, and, and if people see it, I think that it's going to move them. Um, but as we've learned from being involved in education reform and school choice work, uh, for many years now, all of this change is incremental. I think this could have a very powerful effect, but we still got to keep plugging away every day, explaining why you want freedom in education. All kids are different. They need different things. You want educators to be able to be rewarded when they do a good job. And we want innovation, and that means we got to have freedom. And so we got to keep saying that, but this sort of thing is a great tool to move the ball forward. Right. I don't think anybody who watches the documentary is going to sign up for the Cato Institute newsletter, run out into the street, put on a yellow school choice weave scarf, and, uh, you know— call their congressman about supporting a voucher program. But what I, I do think is that it's going to open people's minds to other ways of thinking about education and realize that, oh, you know, the system that we have where students are assigned to their school based on the house that their parents happen to afford, um, that's not the only way of doing things. It's not the only way of doing things elsewhere in the world. Historically, even in the United States, it's not the only way we've done things. And, you know, maybe there is a better way. Maybe the system that we have now, uh, maybe you're right. It, uh, it's stagnant in ways that uh, other fields are not. And so maybe there are some changes that, that we could implement that would lead to greater innovation and diversity in the types of schools and uh, in education institutions that we have. Yeah, and something that people always would say about Andrew Coulson, especially after he died, was he, that guy was just so likable. He was always so optimistic, always had such great sense of humor. And that really comes through in this documentary. And I think that that sort of presentation is really going to help to get this message across. Because I think too often, you know, people hear about 
profit especially, and, and especially if you're connecting it to kids, you think, well, that's probably some mean capitalist with a black hat uh, with a, and a scary mustache who is trying to, to take advantage of children. And when you see Andrew presenting this, you know, kind of gleefully, um, you can't help but have positive feelings about what he's talking about. That's what they have said about Milton Friedman, the weird kind of nice avuncular quality of Milton Friedman help people take the maybe bitter pill of free market better. And, and if Andrew definitely had that kind of personality. And I also think it's important that, the, that we have stories. This, this seems to, I'm sure this was part of Andrew's vision. We can have charts and graphs and theories, but what we really need is, is stories. Would you, would you agree? Yeah. So this is, this is a, an issue, I think, for libertarians generally, right? Uh, I mean, take, let's say, the minimum wage debate. Uh, you've got a, a, a debate, let's say, between a libertarian and uh, somebody on the left over the, over the minimum wage. Uh, the libertarian starts pulling out charts and graphs showing how, you know, in the aggregate, this is going to reduce uh, employment and, and so on and so forth. And then someone on, on the left tells a story about a single mom, uh, you know, working really hard all day, making the minimum wage and not having enough food on the table. Right. They they're able to tell a story that brings their message across uh, in a way that I think can defeat the sort of the approach that, you know, the economic approach. So, yeah, Andrew tells stories. Andrew shows how the system evolved over time, how in other fields you have much more innovation. And he gets into the why, but, but he's, you know, with the concrete, not just up in the abstract. And I think that is a, a lesson for us in education reform, but also for the libertarian movement more broadly, that we have stories that we can tell too, and it's very important we tell them. And if we want to persuade people, uh, you know, humans are storytelling animals. Where is the educational freedom movement now uh, compared to 15 years ago, about the time that Andrew started at Cato? Is it better than it was before? I mean, Jason, you're kind of in the trenches now on the state level. Are we seeing more acceptance of this? I think it is. Uh, and I think just, I mean, you, we see more and more states that uh, where the state legislatures are looking at school choice and educational choice, not just uh, schools anymore, not just vouchers, but also education savings accounts, uh, which, which allow families uh, not only to spend the funds on private school tuition, but also tutors, textbooks, homeschool curricula, online courses, and, and roll over unused funds from year to year to save for college. So, yeah, I think uh, right now, uh, today, as we speak, the Arizona Senate uh, and later today, the Arizona House will be voting on expanding their ESA to a universal eligibility. Uh, New Hampshire this year is looking at uh, adopting a universal ESA uh, and, and a bunch of other states uh, as well. Maine just introduced legislation, Missouri, I make it go through the whole line. Uh, so people are excited about it. Uh, you know, each year, more and more states are adopting programs or expanding them. Uh, for example, just a couple of years ago, we called it the Year of Educational Choice. You had about 20 states adopt uh, new uh, programs or expand existing choice programs. So I think we're getting close to a, a tipping point. I think people recognize that uh, education is just, you know, the, our district school system is, is a bit of a quagmire and people want something new and different. And, and, and parents recognize that in every other area of their lives, 
they're able to customize everything, whether they're buying a car or a laptop uh, or, you know, they're on Pandora, you know, their music, every, every aspect of their life is entirely customizable, except this one area where you're assigned to a school based on, on the location of your home. And they recognize that's incongruous, and they want some. They want more freedom, and they want more customization. Yeah, and the reality is, most people now accept school choice as something we should have on some level. So, if you go back to 1989, there were no charter schools, no modern voucher, modern voucher programs. You go to 2008, uh, then candidate Obama is running for president, and I think he actually said this in front of the National Education Association, the largest teachers union. But if not, it was in a major speech. And he said, you know, of course, parents should have a say in where their kids go to school. That's a, that Symbolically, that was huge, to have the person running as the Democrat standard bearer, and that's the party that's typically been most kind of beholden to the teachers union, to have him saying, of course, parents should have a say in where their kids go to school. That means culturally, we've had a huge shift, even if we don't see it reflected in you know, millions and millions of kids now going to private schools through a school choice program. And some of the things that Andrew discusses in the movie, as Jason pointed out, they're the kind of things like Khan Academy where it shows you that you could do this in a different way. I mean, in a very hands-on way to say, for a very long time, well, we've studied all the ways of teaching calculus and we have decided via school board committees and Texas Texas uh, textbook uh, discussions that this is the best way of teaching calculus. And someone comes along and says, no, here, here's a better way of doing it. What are the biggest obstacles to school choice right now, um, other than sort of the obvious of public opinion and unions, which I guess would be, would be a, a big one? Um, and you're fighting on the state level. What are we finding as the biggest obstacles? I mean, so yeah, I mean, the, the idea that uh, you've got a lot of families who said, look, I'm an upper middle class family. I play by the rules. I purchased a house which had an inflated price because uh, I have a good school district. And you're coming along and saying, well, no, everybody should be able to choose their school. Uh, that's going to reduce the premium value on my home because of uh, my school district. Uh, and I'm just not terribly interested in that. I chose my school. I chose it through a market. And that market was called the real estate market. And I'm not interested in, in change. I think that's... Uh, that's something that we have to, you know, on the right, uh, and then on the left, obviously, there's the teachers unions and, and the public school establishment, um, and, and those two uh, actually groups work together hand in hand, uh, in some sense, to uh, to fight change. So that politically, I think, is is the obstacle. Um, in terms of policy, I think we have to get over this idea that accountability means government regulations. And that's been the case for a long time because, you know, the public school system is essentially a, a monopoly, like a public utility. And so it, because public utilities aren't directly accountable to the consumer, you need to have some sort of top-down regulation. That's how the economic argument goes. And so because schools aren't, uh, you know, district schools aren't directly accountable to the parents, they're accountable to an elected school board, they're accountable to, you know, the State Department of Education, even to some extent the Federal Department of Education, uh, we need these sort of top-down regulations. And then, so we open up uh, school choice with a voucher or tax credit or ESA, and they say, oh, the private schools are unaccountable because they don't have the same regulations. But the reality is the opposite. 
The private schools are directly accountable to the parents who have the ability to leave and take their money with them. Those schools are much more accountable. Uh, but there's still this public perception that, oh, if they're not regulated, that means they're not really accountable. Uh, and it's, it's sort of a bizarro world. And we need to get people to see through that and understand what really real accountability is. As, as Neil pointed out before, you know, accountability is when people actually bear the consequences of their success or failure. And in the district school system, that's not the case. You know, when generations of children are graduating without able, being able to read their own diploma, nobody gets fired, right? No system gets completely upended and uh, every, you know, all the teachers and the superintendents are, are replaced. That doesn't happen. Uh, in a private school system, you know, if a school is not performing, if parents aren't satisfied with the service that they're getting for their money, that school has to close because parents are going to go somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a problem of sort of the upper middle class people who are saying, look, the public school works okay for me. Yes, I, I chose it by where I live. And the reality is, for a lot of those people, they're probably not getting the education they should for all the money that goes into the school, but their kids are going to end up doing all right. Sometimes that's even in spite of the school. Because there is really a limit to what the school does versus lots of things that go on outside of school. So that's maybe the biggest problem is kind of upper middle class people are like, what, who needs school choice? These public schools work fine for us and generally their kids do okay. The other thing seems to be there's uh, Terry Moe did survey work on this. You know, back 2001, maybe things have changed. But he identified something he calls a public school ideology, which is people just feel almost like instinctively that we've got to have these government-run schools because they are a fundamental American institution that kind of holds us together. Historically, that's wrong. But people feel that. And so when you talk about school choice, we often have to deal with that. Often I think that storytelling is the way to do this. Uh, but you have to start to chip away at this idea that if we somehow were able to freely choose schools, that we would disintegrate and stop being a nation. And it would be great if we started with people actually knowing their educational history. Well, it does seem that there are people uh, and maybe they're on the sidelines now. We talk about outcomes. You know, are, which one gets the best outcome. But there are some people who are for public education because of the socialization aspect. I mean, I think that ties with what you said, Neil. Not not because they say, no, all everyone needs to learn important citizenship roles, important things. Now, it seems for someone like that, Andrew's movie will affect them not at all. Well, it might. He, he, I mean, he deals with these questions. I think it's in the third episode. So everybody needs to go all the way through the third episode. I mean, three weeks in a row, depending on which station it is. Um, but he talks about things like the Philadelphia Bible riots, where people were literally killed in conflicts over which version of the Bible they'd be reading in schools. He talks about the socialization because he knows these are both important to people when they talk about public schooling, but because in a free society, we should be really concerned about a system where the assumption is everybody should be sort of forced to be the same. So absolutely, he gets into that. He deals with the outcomes. He deals with the social aspects. And the important thing is he does it in a way that's entertaining and engaging. So rather than like listening to a guy like me drone on, people actually want to keep hearing this. So we have the movie and um, it is wonderful that this was – seen to fruition uh, at the at the end of Andrew's uh, unfortunately short life. And the movie will be around so we can always watch Andrew and remember him. What do we see other than this, you know, tangible movie as Andrew's legacy uh, going forward in the fight for educational freedom? 
Well, he, uh, he was doing this before the documentary, um, but the documentary is a major part, uh, you know, Pi, it's his magnum opus. Um, but within especially the school choice community, always driving it to bigger school choice, so for more people, with much more freedom as a part of it. And, and Jason was talking about the accountability debate. That is a huge one, where what Andrew's done, what Andrew talked about, Andrew's research, gives major sort of ammunition for the people like us who want to say, if you want school choice, and if you want it to be meaningful, and if you want it to be widespread, you have to maximize freedom. And that means not doing things like saying, every school that participates has to administer the state test, and you get thrown out of the program if, if your students don't do well on that test. At that point, you make choice kind of meaningless. And what he's done, and what his legacy will continue to be, is to make the case very powerfully that you need to maximize freedom within school choice. Right. And he he did it by studying history and not just in the United States, but looking around the world. And I think that was something that's very important for the education movement as well, which you can get too much too caught up in, in looking at, you know, little studies of this or that to intervention, you know, and, you know, Charlotte Mecklenburg or, you know, whatever. Uh, Andrew said, well, no, let's go back and look at Athens and Sparta. And, and what were the differences in their education systems? What were the differences in the outcomes there? I think I'd rather right. be an Athenian yes. from what uh, I know about this. And if you read Andrew's book, you even more so. I, I have, yes, and yeah. it's spectacular. Right. You know, he says, okay, well, how did it work in the Middle Ages? You know, how, how about uh, in the Golden Age of Islam? Right. He takes you throughout world history and, sh and shows you different types of systems, you know, diametrically opposed and, and what those produced in terms of their society and culture, uh, and also looked at the international evidence today. So not just looking at the research here in the United States, but also there are school choice programs in other countries, uh, maybe not designed the way that Andrew or I or Neil would like to design them, but they're there. And let's, let's compare uh, systems that have more choice versus those that have more centralized control. Let's compare systems where there are more private schools flourishing versus those where there are very few. And let's look at the outcomes. Uh, and then let's, let's tally them up and, and see if there's a difference. And Andrew did find that there was a very significant difference in that uh, freedom and direct control to parents and, and low levels of regulation actually tend to produce better outcomes and just, frankly, more human flourishing. Yeah, and, and just to sort of as a kind of shameless plug, but we, uh, Jason and I, co-edited a book called Educational Freedom, Re or what, now I just forgot that. Remembering Remem Andrew Colton. Uh, yeah, Remembering Andrew Colton, debating his ideas. But we actually have a whole lot of people who are involved in the school choice movement continuing to debate a lot of these ideas. So once people have watched School Inc. and they want to sort of learn more about what Andrew especially stood for and what maybe other people are saying against it or agreeing with it, they can also get that book. It'll, it's free uh, at, on the Cato website. Is it a bad time to be a libertarian? Author and Cato Institute fellow P.J. O'Rourke says it's never been a better or at least more important time to advocate on behalf of individual liberty, individual dignity, and individual responsibility. O'Rourke spoke at a Cato event in New York in March. 
when your house is on fire, that's not a terrible time to pour water on the flames, you know, and, and we're here today to pour water on the flames and to pour wine in our glasses, too. You know, take a drink, take courage. Together, we will smother the blaze. Yeah, it, it is a troubling moment for libertarians. I mean, nationally, Trump, Clinton, and Sanders were the most anti-libertarian contenders for the office of chief executive in America since Jefferson Davis ran for president of the Confederacy. Internationally, we're seeing a rise of statism, jingoism, and authoritarianism that ranges from the, the faintly comic spectacle of the European Union in shambles to the deeply sinister activities of Vladimir Putin and, and Xi Jinping. I mean, they're taking measurements for a new Iron Curtain. You know? um, now, fortunately, as libertarians, we're used to trouble. I mean, we libertarians have a creed, individual liberty, individual dignity, individual responsibility. Trouble is, almost everybody hates at least one of those things. You know? <laughs> Usually the responsibility one. You know? <laughs> Plus, we libertarians put our creed into practice by means of reason. And the trouble is, almost everybody's unreasonable. So every moment is a troubled moment for libertarians. You know? Let's try to look at the positive side of what is going on in the world. I mean, maybe this dark moment for libertarians is also a teachable moment for libertarianism. You know, we are, it isn't just America that's having an awkward political moment. I mean, we are in the midst of a global revolt against the elites, the elites who created the post-World War II international order and who for the past 70 years have been running everything running everything into the ground, as far as libertarians are concerned. Now, the hallmark of the elites has been the expansion of collectivist political power. Political power has, has expanded in size and expense. One-third of the world's GDP is now spent by the politicians in government. One out of every three things you make is grabbed by governments. If your cat has three kittens, one of them is a government agent. Political power has expanded in scope. Politics casts its net over every little aspect of life. Nothing is so private that it isn't tangled up in politics. Transgender bathrooms. Now, we all know that politics is crap, and now we find out when we, where we take one is a political issue. You know? And politics just keeps expanding. I mean, ask the political elites any question. Is the climate changing? Is healthcare too expensive? Are the middle class wages stagnant? Should I get my dog spayed? You know? And the political elites always have the same answer. Politics needs to be expanded in size and scope. They say we need more big fat rules and regulations. We need more big fat politics. And I'll tell you, it is over when the fat lady sings. I mean, politics has become such an obese operatic performer warbling so loudly that none of us bit players you know, can, can be heard. And, and, and politics so fat that, that, that we're shoved into the orchestra pit of angry rebellion. Now, when are these elite politicians going to realize politics is a two-way street? 
The elite politicians, they create a powerful, huge, heavy, unstoppable monster truck of a government. And then those politicians, those elite politicians, they all shocked and weepy and all upset when another politician, not so elite, whom they detest, gets behind the wheel, turns that truck around and runs them over, you know? We need, we need to make the truck smaller. Yank the engine, install foot pedals, you know, make government into a kitty car, you know, so that the worst it can do is smack us in the shins, you know. So people all over the world are saying, we're sick of the elites. We're tired of the experts. To hell with the deep thinkers who think they know what we should have better than we do and who, while they're at it, are grabbing everything we've got. So we can see this revolt against the elites. We can see it in the rise of, of both of left-wing green uh, uh, and right-wing nationalist political parties all, all through Europe. Uh, we see it in Brazil, uh, where almost every politician in the country, right, left, and middle of the road, has been charged with corruption for the simple reason that they're guilty of it. Um, <laughs> Great Britain's political, business, and trade union elites were all opposed, all opposed to Brexit. So that is to say that the people who supported the Iraq War plus the people who caused the 2008 global financial crisis, plus the people who nationalized the British automobile industry. They were all in unprecedented agreement on this one issue. And voters, I mean, voters felt like, how could you go wrong voting against that trifecta? You know? <laughs> in Latin America, a similar coalition of Colombia's elites spent five years negotiating a peace treaty with a starving rabble of communist guerrillas who had been marauding in the country's hinterlands since 1964. And a plebiscite was held to ratify the peace agreement, causing Colombian voters to ask, what, what? After 52 years of murder, kidnapping, pillage, theft, and trafficking in narcotics, the guerrillas are getting retirement benefits? <laughs> the plebiscite failed, you know? Even the dull politics of Australia have been in turmoil. I mean, the politics in Australia are so dull that the name of the Conservative Party is the Liberal Party. <laughs> but Australia's had five prime ministers in six years. The last election nearly uh, resulted in a hung parliament. Hung parliament, I must have been a tempting idea. I mean, I <laughs> suppose hanging legislators is immoral. And it's probably illegal too, except in Queensland if parliamentarians are caught chasing sheep. Um, <laughs> politics of Canada, even duller than the politics of Australia. And yet in Canada, they now have a premier who's a completely inexperienced, dashing young celebrity named Justin. Um, I haven't Googled Canadian politics because who would? Um, but, but I'm assuming that Justin is Bieber. Okay? <laughs> and here in America, of course, we see the revolt against the elites in the, in the, in the ridiculous rise of Donald Trump. All change is disruptive, all change is scary. Changing a diaper, change of life, any change in a water mole, a kind of people who ask for spare change on the street, you know, it's all scary. And, and when contemporary social and economic change are combined with contemporary distrust of political elites, a distrust that has been well earned, uh, the, results, the results can be disturbing. I mean, Russia's ugly new nationalism comes from Vladimir Putin harnessing popular outrage at the kleptomaniac political elites who took possession of Russia after perestroika. 
Uh, Xi Jinping's neo-Maoism makes use of popular anger at the sort of all the tea in China scale of corruption among Chinese elites. You know, uh, there are anti-elite aspects to a fanatical interpretation of jihad. I mean, ISIS terrorists hate elites. They hate elites so much that they have suicide squads of elites uh, who go around killing themselves. You know, uh, modern world is a scary world. And fear is a bad school, Marm. We've got a monster at the blackboard. And how can we, how can the libertarian fundamentals, how, the, how, can, how can pupils learn even the one point plus one, one plus one of libertarian fundamentals, if all they can think is, eek, teacher is huge and slimy and scaly and has tentacles growing out of its head, you know? So they, they turn for help to the, to, to the big stupid bully at the back of the room which is how we got Donald Trump, you know? And this is where we libertarians come in, what to do. Our job is to teach the world that individual liberty, individual dignity, and individual responsibility are the best safeguards against the failures of the bloated elite political overreach. And that reason is the best tool for adjusting to change. The clamor to do something about income inequality may well mask an opposition to what Nobel laureate economist Angus Deaton calls the great escape, the escape of many parts of the world from abject poverty. He discussed inequality and progress at the Cato Institute's Benefactor Summit held in March. The guiding metaphor in my book, The Great Escape, is the movie starring Steve McQueen, which is set in a German prisoner of war camp and where several hundred prisoners dig tunnels through which to escape. The book, like the movie, is about the indomitable urge for freedom and the impossible hurdles that it's capable of overcoming. But I ask you to think for the moment, not only about those who escaped, but those who, for whatever reason, fear, risk aversion, they were busy doing something else, decided to stay behind. The escaped caused inequality between those who left and those who were left behind. That inequality is simply a consequence of the freedom attained by the escapees. It is not any sort of bad thing. It's just a consequence of the fact that only some were freed. We should celebrate it just as we should celebrate the escape itself. And there's more. Um, after the escape is over and those left behind think about whether they too should try to escape. The inequality between them and the escapees provides a demonstration of what is possible so that those who thought it couldn't happen now realize that perhaps it can, even for them, and that they too can be free. And if they hear tidings of the successes of those who made it, they have the incentive to try. This is how progress happens. A few individuals break the mold, do something new, and that helps others to follow. I think of innovation and invention today in the same way. They create inequality 
but with entirely positive consequences. Of course, that's not all that happens with inequality, but it's part of it, and it's an important part that we always need to keep in mind. To be against that sort of inequality is to be against progress itself. Perhaps the classic idea about inequality is inequality of outcomes, which other things being the same is thought to be a bad thing. Or put more positively, if we compare two situations with the same level of GDP and the same level of growth of GDP, the country where GDP is more equally distributed is better. The idea behind this is sometimes called prioritarianism, that those with less should get priority or preference in policy. I think this is the underlying philosophy behind Piketty's book, for example, and many other economists who write on these issues. Like many philosophers, I think this idea is wrong, though I think that most of us would accept the obligation to help those who are in dire poverty. But in general, I don't believe that you're getting more makes me any the worse off in and of itself. Of course, if you use your good fortune to hurt me, a real enough possibility that needs to be discussed, things are different. But if someone gets rich, good luck to them. Otherwise, it is as if those behind in the prisoner of war camp can legitimately complain that their lives are worse just because some people made a successful escape. Yet there are many, particularly on the left, who think that equality is a desirable goal in and of itself. An alternative account, which is often endorsed by both right and left, is equality of opportunity. While it's okay to let people prosper by their own efforts, we should attempt to make sure that everyone, by virtue of equality of citizenship, starts out in childhood on a level playing field. This idea has enormous appeal, but the more you think about it, the more difficult and less appealing it becomes. It's very hard to make it work. Even if you're in favor of a heavy estate tax, which many who endorse equality of opportunity are not, few would surely support a prohibition on allowing parents to use their talents to favor their children. And even if we could have managed to get approximate equality of opportunity at the start of life, it will erode over time as some people get lucky and some do not. We might indeed want to allow people to be fully responsible for their actions and to compensate them only for the things that happen to them that are out of their own control. But that produces hard cases too. If someone gets lung cancer but has no insurance, do we give them treatment only if they never smoked? Of course, there are parts of this that are right, and the part of the, in a, a part of the equality of opportunity argument that most Americans agree with is the idea that every child should be guaranteed a good education. Hard enough to do. Procedural inequality is the third kind of inequality, and one that seems to me to be important and overly neglected. This is the idea that it matters how inequality comes about, that not all kinds of inequality are morally equivalent. If people get rich by inventing things, by innovations and by entrepreneurship, that is a good thing, like the progress and the great escape, and we should welcome the inequality that it creates. 
On the other hand, if people get rich by seeking favors from government, by legally or illegally bribing the state to make them rich at the expense of the rest of us, then the inequality that comes from that is a bad thing and we should work against it. Getting rich by making is fine. Getting rich by stealing is not fine. What is the proper global role for the United States in the 21st century? Since World War II, the United States, as the most powerful state, has chosen to be deeply engaged in the world, taking responsibility for global peace and stability, guaranteeing the security of dozens of foreign nations, promoting free trade, and posing as the policeman of the world. Stephen Brooks is co-author of America Abroad, the United States' global role in the 21st century. Brooks and Eugene Goles of the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT Austin debated America's role in the world and the idea of so-called deep engagement. Many people who critique the deep engagement grand strategy misinterpret it because they do not focus on its constant defining elements. So what are those constant defining elements? Let me first by talk about what they are not. Is active democracy promotion a defining element? We would say no. Is assertive human rights promotion a defining element? We would say no. Is transforming other societies to look like us a defining element? We would say no. And is the regular use of military power a defining element? We would say no. Rather than being constant defining elements of the grand strategy, all those things I just mentioned are things which have varied from administration to administration and sometimes have varied within a given administration. So what are the constant defining elements of deep engagement? What ultimately lies at the core of deep engagement are three objectives. First, managing the external environment to reduce near and long-term threats to US security. Second, promoting a liberal economic order to expand the global economy and maximize US prosperity. And third, creating, sustaining, and revising the global institutional order to secure necessary interstate cooperation to advance American interests. At least until January 20th of this year, those three objectives have been constant elements of US grand strategy for 70 years. And the pursuit of those objectives underlies what is arguably the United States' most consequential strategic choice, which is to maintain security partnerships to allies in three core regions, Europe, East Asia, and the Middle East. Yes, there are costs and risks associated with deep engagement, but they are manageable. The scholarly proponents of retrenchment advanced a powerful set of arguments for why deep engagement is costly and risky, and they pointed to five things in particular. Free riding, if we defend our allies, they spend less. Entrapment, our allies might pull us into a war that's not in our interest. Budgetary costs, we're spending all this money on defense that we could be using here at home. Balancing. We make other countries mad or madder than they would otherwise be, and they do things to check us. And finally, temptation, which is the kind of, if you have a hammer, 
then everything looks like a nail kind of problem. This constant temptation to do something given all this material power that we have. So in the book, we run through and address all these counter arguments in detail. We think they're serious. They all have merit except for the balancing one. And by far the strongest of them is the temptation. As for the free riding, the entrapment, and the budgetary cost counter arguments, they obtain but weakly in our view. Responding to Stephen Brooks, Eugene Goles, associate professor at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at UT Austin and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Deep engagement has a serious temptation problem. And um, Bill and Steve are very sensitive to this and they say flat out over and over again, there is no temptation problem in true deep engagement to do democracy promotion or to do humanitarian interventions. Like, that's just not part of the strategy. If the United States feels like doing that on top, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but that's not deep engagement, so don't tar us with that. I do think it's meaningful that sometimes the United States does it anyway. Like, they can't just swear that off. It, it is a cost of the current strategy, but that's not the temptation I'm talking about. The temptation I'm talking about is if you define the core security, prosperity, and liberty interests of the United States the way they do, you will be tempted to fight wars and to make costly commitments around the world on security grounds. And so they, when they say, we personally opposed the Iraq war, I'm not sure why. I can't figure it out. Right? And, and, they, and if you weren't them, if you weren't Bill and Steve, who are, are super smart and, and have thought a lot about this and, want, and I believe them when they say they're not interested in the Iraq war, but if you were other people engaging in deep engagement, you would do Iraq. Right? And the answer is, the, the, the point is that the Iraq war was not justified on the grounds of democracy promotion. That was the ex post justification after we didn't find WMD. But in the lead up to the Iraq war, the conversation about it was Iraq poses a security threat to the United States. As part of deep engagement, we have to fight the Iraq war for a security reason, a security threat to the United States. It was easy on the deep engagement grounds. I want to know how if what deep engagement says is we care about three regions of the world, one of them being the Middle East, we care about nuclear proliferation, we care about oil, and we believe that it's necessary to use US force to protect against nuclear proliferation and against instability in oil producing regions of the world, based on the logic of deep engagement, how do you say no to the Iraq war? Right? And the Iraq war is a terrible blunder, and even they agree. They say over and over again, oh, thank God you don't have to do Iraqs if you do deep engagement. But I can't figure out, based on the logic, why not? There's always a temptation, if what you say, their quotes, we're going to manage the external environment for US security, and we are going to shape, we're going to engage in globe-shaping efforts and we are going to revise the global institutional order, right? They have a very activist bias built into the language that they talk about when they say the US core security goals are to protect our, our security, prosperity, and liberty. The way they define security, prosperity, and liberty is we have to do something, right? But we might be able to have security, prosperity, and liberty while doing less, 
And if we phrase them not in a deep engagement way, but in a restraint way, we would be less tempted to see the need for Iraqs in order to preserve those three core goals that they, that they are talking about. So I think that they've developed a very important argument, but I think it's hard for them to say no to some of the big costs, and it's hard for them to justify some of the, the benefits that they purport to get out of deep engagement. I think they downplay the costs and risks that are real, and they fail to adjust to the way the world has changed. Right? So they're trying, they're, they are looking for the appeal that says, we're going to just keep doing what we did as the United States to win the Cold War. They contort their description of the Cold War grand strategy of the United States in various ways to make it seem like deep engagement is just a continuation of fighting the Cold War, which was justified. And that's not right. They're on a different project. The Cold War was about resisting a particular enemy that was powerful and threatening. Now they're about shaping and changing the international environment and picking fights around the world, tempting the United States to intervene over and over again. So there are, the appeal that they're drawing is a strong appeal, but it's a wrong appeal. National decline often arises from special interests corrupting a country's institutions, but less attention is given to government insiders, rulers, elected officials, bureaucrats, and public employees. Mark Zupan examines how these groups advance their own interests within government in his new book, Inside Job, How Government Insiders Subvert the Public Interest. He spoke at the Cato Institute in March. The book deals with the topic that's been with us for a while. Uh, why do nations succeed and fail? And that's a topic that's been uh, extensively thought of, whether by economists, political scientists, sociologists, etc., philosophers. Looking at either autocracies or democracies or both. The economic model of politics has been around roughly 50 years. So it's grown out of a time where democracy has been the focus. And it conceptualizes politics uh, like other settings in life uh, that economists look at as a market. On the demand side are interests that compete for favorable rulings, policy decisions that generate positive wealth transfers for them. Whether these interests are business, businesses, labor unions, consumer activists, environmentalists or general citizens. The supply side, according to this model, is comprised of rulers or polit uh, political leaders, but more broadly, we can also think of those that are appointed to execute policies, uh, bureaucrats, and then also, if we think more broadly, the military and public employees. Where things go wrong, common belief among economists has been there's been capture of the system uh, from the demand side of this political marketplace. Uh, George Stigler, who um, won a Nobel Prize in economics for this idea, initially conceptualized um, this model and believed the producers, because they were more concentrated, would be most likely to co-opt the system. And very similar, in fact, to the way Karl Marx uh, looked at what happens in politics. That 
conceptualization got broadened by other economists like Gary Becker, um, Posner, um, Peltzman, uh, to be expanded to include other potential capturing interest groups from the demand side. And we could certainly find cases where it seemed not producers but consumers were co-opting the process for their benefit, or environmentalists, or one percenters, or economic elites. Any good criminal investigator, though, um, when you're trying to find out uh, who may be at fault, uh, what you look for is motive means an opportunity. And those are all uh, present on the supply side of politics. Had we not been looking at just the last 50 years, had we looked more broadly the last century, several centuries where autocracies were the norm, we would probably have a different uh, perspective on this marketplace. When autocracies were the norm, the belief would be that the rulers own the state, the country and its citizens, um, as in Louis XIV saying, l'état c'est moi. And this is not to say the government insiders can't advance the public interest. Uh, they're human beings like the rest of us, uh, whether those human beings uh, uh, populate business settings, uh, everyday workplaces, uh, they have capacity for great good, also great evil. Anybody who's been uh, to the beaches at Omaha in Normandy uh, can't be but moved by what uh, people will do to sacrifice for the greater good. Harold Laswell, the political scientist, uh, to paraphrase his definition of politics, it was who gets what, how, why, when, and where. And what this book does is look at those fundamental questions. If we're to pry open the black box on the supply side, who is it? What and why? Um, may they be motivated uh, to co-opt the system? How do they do it? And when and where have they done it? And it's an important enough question. In the developed world, now government outlays account for 50% of GDP and 28% of the workforce. Who is on the supply side? In autocracies, we think of rulers and their coterie. In democracies, we think of elected officials. As people like Niskanen and James Q. Wilson have pointed out, we also have to worry about uh, people that populate our bureaucracies. Uh, they aren't perfectly policed. They have some latitude to design and implement policies. Also, public employees in the military. There was a recent book review uh, done of uh, the Praetorian Guard in the Roman Empire and the role they played in both figuring out who is going to be in power or stay in power, um, in many cases to the detriment of the Roman citizenry. There have been other similar reviews of a recent book that came out on Alexander the Great's army or the elite military troops uh, that defended the Tsar. The supply side shows up in a few places. Um, and this is what first got me started on the question back in the 80s with a colleague, Joe Colt, looking in democratic settings. Uh, we were trying to test George Stigler's model. And uh, what other economists had done was to try to find out to what extent interest groups could actually explain individual issue outcomes. So we started looking at voting on uh, strip mining legislation. And we were amazed while there was some explanatory power from the demand side, it was surprisingly limited. 
And it also surprised us to what extent we could explain senators' votes on strip mining legislation with how they voted on abortion bills. So there was something about these ideological motives. Perhaps they were policed at around election time as opposed to individual issues, but they seemed to matter. And even when we looked at the broader bundles that we elect in congressional settings and democracies, there seemed to be in present-day United States a fair bit of latitude. Whether Republican or Democrat, they had different viewpoints to affect, to, to pursue their non-pecuniary objectives. What are the motives? Uh, we usually think of uh, kleptocracy as a pecuniary motive, and there's certainly examples we could point to and that play out in the daily press, most recently rulers in places or uh, officials in places like Malaysia or what was revealed in the Panama Papers. Uh, historically, we can point to the Marcos family or Croesus or even further back, um, uh, Henshan in China, um, at Trujillo in um, the Dominican Republic. At one point, his family wealth was 100% of GDP of his country, and he accounted for 60% of the hiring decisions by estimates made by Achimoglu and Robinson. So, and we certainly can find examples of that, but we also have to leave room for non-pecuniary motives, uh, again, for good or for ill. And we can certainly point to the killing Mao did uh, what Hitler accomplished once in power and was able to move Germany from a, de a democracy to an autocracy. And it's not to say the capture just occurs on the supply side or just occurs on the demand side. Uh, the book argues we often see symbiotic cases. The, the best way to think about it, it's like DNA. Uh, there are four nucleotide bases. Uh, cytosine only bonds with guanine. Timing only bonds with adenine. So even if the capture occurs on the demand side, we should expect to see something awry on the supply side. Or if the capture is motivated from the supply side, there'll be something uh, a kilter on the demand side. This summer, the Cato University College of Economics will be held in Newport Beach, California, where discussions by Nobel laureate Vernon Smith and top scholars from Harvard University, Northwestern University, and the Cato Institute will take you on an intensive look into core economic principles and how these principles affect every aspect of today's most pressing issues. We hope you'll join us and others participating from across the country and often from around the globe as we examine this critical issue at the heart of individual liberty. For more details on speakers and program information or to register, please visit cato-university.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.